You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You love them, you hate them, and you can't stop talking about them. Announcers, analysts, pundits, they're all fair game. It's Sports Media Mayhem with Alex Reamer. Time to let it rip. Hello, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Sports Media Mayhem podcast. My name, of course, is Alex Reamer, and it is Thursday, March the 23rd of 2023. You can find the show, Sports Media Mayhem podcast, wherever you find your favorite pods. We are available on Spotify, Apple, Google. You know the drill by now. Download, listen, rate, and subscribe. One of our returning champions, Andrew Marchand, uh, returns to the show this week. I'll get to Andrew, a contributor to Awful Announcing, in a little bit. But first, let's start off with... uh, I guess the big national sports media news of the week, and that is these pending ESPN layoffs. Uh, The New York Post had it earlier this week. Their ace media reporter, Andrew Marchand, that ESPN is bracing for big cuts within the next four to six weeks. And there are, quote, no sacred cows. People making even as much as seven figures could be let go. And Marchand talked about ESPN's contract negotiations with Chris Fowler, one of their ubiquitous personalities, lead college football hosts, uh, how far apart they are in negotiations over a new deal, which kind of signals the shifting financial reality at ESPN. And this will be the fourth time over the last seven or eight years that ESPN has undergone significant layoffs. They cut workers in 2015, hundreds of workers in 2017, uh, 300 workers, I believe it was at the start of COVID in 2020, and they left 200 positions unfilled. So this will be the fourth round of layoffs in recent years for ESPN. But there's a bit of a different narrative to this set of cuts. In 2015 and especially 2017, a lot of the narrative was based around ESPN's business was failing. Linear TV was declining big time. Uh, ESPN was even portrayed as kind of a drag on Disney as a whole. There was speculation that Disney would siphon off and try to sell ESPN. But here we are in 2023 That's no longer the case. ESPN actually is now its own separate division of Disney. It's one of Disney's stronger divisions. It brings in three quarters of a billion dollars of revenue per month before an advertisement is even sold just due to cable fees. So ESPN right now from the financials is looking pretty good. So why are they bracing for a massive round of cuts within the next four to six weeks with no sacred cows? Well, this is because of its parent company, Disney. Uh, Disney is not in very good shape, uh, like most media and tech companies. Uh, Disney lost $120 billion in market share last year. It's planning to cut 7,000 employees overall as Disney tries to trim $5.5 billion off of its payroll. I'm reading here from Deadline. The cuts are expected to be spread across the company's three divisions, entertainment, ESPN, and parks, experiences, and products, marketing, and distribution, uh, is also probably going to be uh, consolidated as well. Um, So that's the important thing to keep in mind when we talk about this next round of ESPN layoffs and all the speculation and discussion that comes along with that. This is not about ESPN struggling. In fact, ESPN is doing quite well on its own. This is about Disney struggling and Disney looking to consolidate across all of its platforms and all of its divisions. So I know it's so tempting to write the think pieces. Is ESPN too woke? Did ESPN go too far in this direction? 
No, I don't really think this has anything to do with any of that. This is about Disney and Disney alone. And ESPN is owned by Disney. And if you're looking to trim $5.5 billion off of your total payroll company-wide, uh, people making high six figures, seven figures at ESPN would certainly seem to be prime candidates to be cut. Unfortunately, that's just how it works when layoffs happen. Um, and I think in terms of the actual ESPN side of things and who may get cut, won't get cut. First of all, it's important to recognize that probably the majority of people who will lose their jobs are not front-facing personalities. They're production people, staff, maybe some executives, etc. And that doesn't make it any better, but there's all the speculation always about, oh, like which sports center anchor is going to get cut, which NFL analyst is going to get cut. And yeah, we have Ron Jaworski, Trent Dilfer, some others uh, have been part of these layoff rounds in recent years, but it's really a lot of behind-the-scenes people, unfortunately for them. Um, but I go to a line in Andrew Marshan's original New York Post report about how, yes, there are no sacred cows, but the top names at ESPN are safe. So Troy Aikman, who makes $18 million per year. Joe Buck makes $15 million per year. Stephen A. Smith now makes $12 million annually. Scott Van Pelt makes a healthy seven-figure salary as well. He's viewed as an untouchable. So those guys, the biggest earners, untouchable. It's those who make a lot of money and don't move the needle, as Marshan says, who have something to worry about. And I think in a lot of ways, this mirrors our economy right now. The rich get richer and there's less room for everybody else. And this is a sea change from how ESPN has conducted business in the past. Historically, and I learned this from reading the great James Andrew Miller book about ESPN years ago, historically, ESPN had a reputation of undercutting some of its personalities in contract negotiations because ESPN always believed that the brand, the worldwide leader in sports, was bigger than any individual person. That's why when Keith Olbermann's contract was up, he jumped. When Dan Patrick's contract was up, he jumped. Traditionally, a lot of big, big, you now. Craig Kilborn left years ago. I mean, I know I'm going back like 25 years, but you know, historically, it was not uncommon for big names, big anchors to leave ESPN in the SportsCenter franchise when their names got really big because ESPN did not want to pay them what they thought they were worth because to ESPN, it was about the brand more than the person. Now, you're seeing an inverse of that. Yes, the ESPN brand is still the strongest brand in sports media, but there's a lot of competition. And especially, there's a lot of competition when we're talking about things like SportsCenter, highlights, news, analysis. Um, so now, and you're seeing ESPN's spending mirror this, the personalities are now worth more than the brand. Like, what is first take without Stephen A. Smith? I don't think it's anything, right? I mean, we, I saw this week that Chris Mad Dog Russo recently re-signed a contributor deal for ESPN. He's probably getting a healthy sum of money and does a lot less work than I'm sure some of the on-air people who will be part of these rounds of cuts. But Chris Russo, Stephen A., that works on first take. That creates a lot of viral moments. Uh, you know, Buck and Aikman, you know, I think the Monday Night Football ratings this year slightly down show that the announcers don't draw people. The teams do, obviously. But ESPN paid $2.7 billion annually 
for the latest set of NFL rights, two Super Bowls, Buck and Aikman, Monday Night Football. That's a huge, huge brand. And to ESPN, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman calling the games is a big part of that. You know, you talk about Scott Van Pelt. He has his own brand, the SVP 11 o'clock Sports Center. You remove Scott Van Pelt from that show, from that anchor desk in the 11 o'clock Sports Center is not nearly what it was. It can't just go back to a generic 11 o'clock sports center because the audience would would decline. It would decline so fast because people tune in for Scott Van Pelt. So it's interesting that historically a company like ESPN has said, okay, we are the worldwide leader in sports. You want to make X amount of money? That's fine. Go make that elsewhere. But now ESPN can't afford to lose Stephen A. Smith from its studio programming. You know, they're going after Pat McAfee, who's in the midst of a four-year, $120 million deal with FanDuel, right? So that's crazy. We read about these big cuts over the next four to six weeks, and simultaneously, ESPN is chasing Pat McAfee, and will have to pay him a fortune for him to bring his show and his content on board. But guess what? When Pat McAfee comes to ESPN or comes to your network, he's bringing a whole audience and a whole bevy of sponsors on board with him. ESPN is now chasing that because this is a personality-driven climate. It's about the people, not the brand. So two things with the ESPN layoffs. Number one, it's not indicative of how ESPN is doing. It's much more indicative of how Disney is struggling and how the overall media and tech industry is struggling. And it's also indicative of the fact that you read that big ticket names are totally safe. It's those who don't move the needle who are in most danger. That's because ESPN now is chasing the big ticket names because that's they, they are more powerful than the brand itself. It's been an interesting week here in Boston with Jalen Brown, who's uh, said some, well, mixed things, not so kind things about his experiences in Boston as an outspoken black athlete, businessman, entrepreneur. There was an interview last week in the New York Times where Jalen Brown called sections of Celtics fans toxic. That's a direct quote. And then earlier this week, The Ringer, Logan Murdoch of The Ringer, published a story, a long interview feature piece with Jalen Brown in which he was quite noncommittal about his future with the Celtics. And I just want to go through a couple of things here, a couple of misconceptions that I've been seeing and reading about Jalen Brown. Uh, There's this perception that, oh, Jalen Brown, right as the season winds down and the playoffs are starting soon, is on this PR tour, this really, this, uh, you know, this spin tour, if you will, to paint his time in Boston as negative and and talk negatively about the Celtics and, and and how he's been treated with the Durant trade rumors, which he talked about a lot in the ringer. He never knows the organization's true motives. Um, but that's not really the case, okay? The ringer profile, yes, was published this Tuesday, but the interview was conducted in January, all right? And sometimes it takes a couple of months to turn feature stories like that around. And Sopan Deb in the New York Times conducted his interview with Brown in early March, That piece was published late last week, Um, so he had just a few days turnaround there. So this is not some sort of planned, elaborate media tour for Jalen Brown, like, okay, now season winds down, I'm a year removed from free agency just about, now I'm really going to start making waves. It just so happened this way. And also, it's important to know that Jalen Brown is not going out on his own and talking about his experiences in Boston as an outspoken black athlete. Jalen Brown is being asked about these. He's being asked these questions, and he's answering these questions. Interestingly, the one question he doesn't answer is when he's asked about his affiliation with Yee, 
the artist formerly known as Kanye West. Um, I think the Ringer piece had some interesting stuff about his backstory with Kyrie Irving and how they didn't see eye to eye in Boston. Jalen Brown often pushed back at, at Irving when they were teammates with the Celtics, but over the last few years, they've grown much closer. And you know, we'll we'll see we'll see where Jalen Brown evolves. I think it's quite evident that he doesn't love the experience of playing in Boston or at the Celtics. I think it's quite evident that his relationship with Jason Tatum may not be that great. You notice all the things he says about Tatum. Our relationship is what you think. Um, You know, he doesn't really talk about how close they are off the court because they're probably not that close off the court. Um, So it's, and I think Jalen Brown's whole, it's going to be interesting to see how he develops as he ages. He's 26 years old now, clearly is a vice president of the NBA, of the NBA Players Association. He's outspoken on these social justice type issues and, that's great, but, you know, who are his influences now? Yee, Kyrie Irving. Um, you know, I can see a future in which Jalen Brown bolts next summer, signs with the Knicks, and really lets it fly in terms of his political leanings, social leanings, and given his defense of Kyrie Irving for tweeting out an anti-Semitic video or his refusal to denounce Yee, despite the fact that he said he's going DEFCON on Jewish people. You know, I think that I think that there are some questions about Jalen Brown's judgment with whom he surrounds himself with, with whom he surrounds himself. Um, and it will be interesting to see if he views himself as really constricted, both personally and professionally in Boston. Judging by these profiles, I think that's the case. But I also want to say real quick, it's a debate we've been having for years, but it's not really worth much of a debate. Jalen Brown's feelings about how he's been treated in Boston, the climate in Boston for a rich black person, for black entrepreneurs, his feelings are relevant because they're his feelings. And we're talking about Jalen Brown. I am not Jalen Brown. You are not Jalen Brown. We have not walked a day in his shoes. We can say, oh my God, he makes tens of millions annually. Like how hard could it be? But I don't know. We've never been a black, at least I have never been a black man in Boston. And that's how I always view these things. So Jalen Brown's feelings are valid because they are just that, his feelings. Um, But it's interesting that we talk a lot about how athletes now have less of an impetus to talk to journalists. They have their Twitter feeds, their social media channels. But we have two instances over the last few days, a big New York Times interview and a big profile in The Ringer where quotes that Jalen Brown said to a journalist. Journalists actually have driven the news cycle here, which is, uh, at least for me, someone in journalism, a nice change of pace. As I mentioned at the open, at the open of the show, rather, excited to bring on one of our returning champions, Andrew Buckholtz, is a contributor to Awful Announcing. And I spoke with him about ESPN's coming layoffs. The Dove Kleeman story from last week, these NFL aggregators, who are they? What are their purposes? And Andrew recently wrote a really interesting piece about the downfall of local TV news and local TV sports in particular in 2023. And if there's anything that sector of the industry can do to resurrect itself and save itself. Uh, So that conversation is coming up on the other side. It's a Sports Media Mayhem podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. And welcome back to the Sports Media Mayhem podcast. As I was saying in the open, we're bringing back one of our uh, returning champions. We last talked to him at the start of 
the NFL season. Uh, Andrew Buckholtz is a contributor to Awful Announcing and The Comeback. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Alex. Yeah, good to see you, uh, as always. Um, so a few things I want to get into here. I guess the big national sports media story of the week would be these uh, reported ESPN layoffs that are coming. The New York Post, Andrew Marchand, says there are no sacred cows. So uh, that gets people uh, very curious. Um, but basically, I guess the first point is, how should we view these layoffs? Because it's in the Post article. ESPN generates three quarters of a billion dollars per month in cable fees alone. And that's before they even sell an advertisement. So ESPN on its own seems to be doing all right. But Disney, of course, really struggling, lost over $120 billion in market share last year. We know they had to bring back Bob Iger to replace Bob Shapek. So how should we view the, these ESPN layoffs? Is it a commentary on ESPN's business or is this much more about Disney, which is undergoing broad cuts this year as well? Yeah, I, I think it goes even, I think it's more about Disney, but I think it goes yes. even beyond Disney because we're okay. seeing this across the tech and the media sector, yep. right? We've seen right. big layoffs at Amazon. We're seeing most, we're seeing it at Google. Like a, a lot, most of these big companies are undergoing cuts and layoffs of some sort. Right. Um, I, I think, and it's interesting how different that is in terms of ESPN and the narrative around ESPN than it was, say, around 2017, right. when there were the major waves of ESPN layoffs. At that time, ESPN was being blamed as a drag on Disney's stock price. It was coming up in every quarterly earnings call as loss of ESPN, shortfall at ESPN, ESPN not hitting revenue projections. That's not really the case anymore. And at the moment, under this new reorganization, um, ESPN is now one of three main Disney divisions. Uh, I, I wrote a big thing a little while ago about how that and other things going on, in my mind at least, make it a little less likely that ESPN is going to be spun off because everyone keeps right. talking about how important ESPN is to this company, how tightly it is integrated with all of these various other Disney efforts. Right. And so absolutely there are going to be layoffs, there are going to be there are going to be cuts. Some of that, though, um, a deadline piece on these these layoffs was talking about how a lot of it is, Iger putting his own stamp on the company again and trying to centralize a lot of things, I'm including centralizing different different marketing things hmm. uh, and integrating even integrating even more across Disney, across ESPN, across these different units. Mm -hmm. So I, I think these layoffs they're going to they're going to be painful for many of the ESPN. A lot of good people are likely to lose jobs, but I don't think it's any indication of ESPN struggling. No, right. You're, that is so interesting because ESPN had big layoffs in 2015, 17, of course, at the start mm -hmm. of the pandemic, like so many other places. And like you said, I remember in 2017, I mean, it was a huge talking point on WEI. I was on you know, ESPN mm -hmm. and everyone had their own narrative about why ESPN was struggling. Of mm -hmm. course, that was the height of Trump and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it is different now. And I really think it is, as you said, not just Disney, but the larger media landscape because you even look at disney plus that's really struggled over the last year or so but streaming as a whole has really struggled over the last year they've seemed to reach the ceiling there so i think disney like so many other companies is as you said just figuring out like where to go next and with not to get too into it but with interest rates higher and everything it just mm -hmm. it's a messy situation and this really seems like it's beyond espn 
Yeah, the, uh, well, and I think uh, the other thing to keep in mind there too is when something like this does happen across a lot of companies, when you see it, and a lot of tech companies in particular, right. see it, you see it across Amazon, across Google, Disney in a lot of ways is a tech company too, especially Correct. when you're talking about the streaming side. Well, when they all decide to do it at once, a lot of those out of work people wind up going and working for the other company that just laid people off and coming in at a lower rate than they were making. So so there's there's something to it, I think, in terms of the wider sector, what that means and how uh, how a lot of those companies are trying to trying to save money, trying to get cheaper and uh, trying to reduce headcounts. And maybe if they do uh, bring in bring in new people, they're not doing so at quite the rate they would have in the past right well yeah at the start of covid all these tech companies hired like crazy and then it's demand lessons unfortunately positions have to go away as well um what i also think is interesting about these reported layoffs just in terms of espn is i think in a lot of ways it's a good mirror into our current economy so in the new york post andrew marshan says that you know, Joe Buck makes 15 mil, Troy Aikman, 18 mil, Stephen mm -hmm. A. Smith, 12 mil, Scott Van Pelt makes a lot. And those are, you know, untouchable guys. And ESPN is still spending big. Uh, they're going after Pat McAfee. We know about their massive $2.7 billion annual NFL rights deal. And, you know, and Marshan says, you know, it's the people making maybe high six figures who don't move the needle who may, who are definitely in danger here. And uh, I think just, you know, you look at our economy, right? The rich get richer. And there's less money and less room for everybody else. It seems like these mm -hmm. ESPN layoffs are following the same trajectory, right? Like ESPN still spending big and more money than ever before, frankly, on big ticket mm -hmm. names, big ticket items. And then there's less room for everybody else who doesn't move the needle as much. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that that was, to me, was the story of the on-air layoffs in 2017. Of it, it wasn't the absolute top people and the people making the most money. It was a lot of sort of that that middle range of, of ESPN talents who were recognizable, familiar, but were not getting Stephen A. Smith levels of prominence and money or Mike Greenberg levels of prominence and money. And I, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if that is the focus I, again here. Um, I do think something something to keep in mind here, though, with ESPN layoffs. We, we talk, you talked about how they've done so many of these different rounds over the years. Well, in a lot of these rounds, the names that get cut are not people that a lot of the world outside ESPN production. knows. They're, they're production people, exactly. they're, they're yeah. marketing people, they're, they're like, there is so much that goes right. into ESPN right. beyond the people we see on camera. And it's quite possible that that could be a big fa big factor here again. And it's still absolutely notable and worth covering that there are these layoffs and how many people are affected by it. But it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily going to be names that everybody knows and recognizes. Right, absolutely. Um, some of the names that everyone knows and recognizes are the ESPN, of course, Adam Schefter, all these great NFL insiders. And uh, this is a huge time of year for them, Andrew, as you know. But it's also a big time of year for these uh, kind of weird NFL news aggregators. And last week, uh, Dove Kleiman is the most well-known one. He has like over 150,000 followers. He's everywhere, you know, reposts Schefter reports and Rappaport reports and just kind of doesn't, he credits them, but he makes them his own tweet with the own image, mm -hmm. et cetera. And I have a lot of thoughts on this kind of thing first, but I guess my first question to you would be, what do you make of the 
Dove Climbins of the world. They pop up all over sports, you know, pop culture now, like these Twitter aggregators who are able to amass massive followings over doing just that simple aggregation. Like, what do you think about them? And what do you think that their ultimate goal might be? Well, I think the main goal really is is for them to try and build up their own brand and their own right. following. And that came up with Kleiman and some of the stuff he's talked about, how this has led to some writing gigs for him. It certainly led to a big Twitter profile for him. And, you know, in, in some ways that's fair. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not against the concept of aggregation with no. proper credit. Obviously, that's I, I do a it lot for of, a living a lot of the time. Yeah, <laughs> as do I. But, but I mean, I think uh, from my from my personal standpoint, I don't love the way that a bunch of these guys do it on Twitter because, from for me at least, when I'm aggregating something, I'm trying to add some context, some right. history, some perspective. Exactly. And more. I think there isn't really a lot of room to do that just on Twitter. And these guys aren't really doing that on Twitter. They are they're just just relaying literally what somebody else said a lot of the time. And a bunch of the times when they have gone to trouble is when they've made it a little different than, than what somebody said, used some different wording or, or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think there is some value to that for a very, for a certain audience. There, there's a value to that for people who want to know what, it, when a transaction is happening in the NFL yeah. or the, or the NBA or whatever, and particularly if they want to know if that's happening um, when it is broken by a local person, because not ev not everyone is going to follow every local NFL NBA reporter the way a right. lot of these aggregators do. And the aggregators, if they're doing it well, they get that out there very quickly. They bring it to a wider audience. There's some value there for some people. I think where where this gets, and I think also some of the criticism that that Kleiman took in particular is not fair. In that people people yelling at him over Trey Wingo's report is not right. really fair. Like that that was that was Trey Wingo. Wingo put that out there. He owns whether that's right or not, and whether he should have said different things about the timing or not. So, I think the criticism of the aggregators. Can be can be fair for um for the, for their existence for for their approach for how they're doing things if they're really adding to the conversation or not, but there are people who like them. They provide value for some people, and mm -hmm. where we should yell at them is when they when they change the wording, when they don't right. give credit, and when when they they're not accurately relaying the original thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I guess I'll start with um in defense of the aggregators, if you will. So I was thinking of myself, you know, I'm 30 years old and I think, okay, what would a 20 year old me looking to break into sports writing, what would I do? Well, 10 years ago when I was 20, I started, you know, a WordPress blog. I started, you know, a podcast that few people mm -hmm. listen to, um, you know, and now if I was a college student looking to gain, you know, gain an audience, build my brand, if you will, I would probably maybe be one of these Twitter aggregators. And that's just how I would do it. And that's how I would build an audience. The difference is, of course, it takes much more time and effort to actually write blog entries. And you're writing those blog entries for like, you know, seven people, all of whom mm -hmm. you're related to probably. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, someone like Dove Kleiman on Twitter, if you're good with the algorithm, which he clearly is, you can amass a big following very quickly. So I think it's like, it's just a difference in how the industry works now, right? If you're looking to break in and build an audience, used to start a blog that nobody read because that was really mm -hmm. the only way to get your voice out there, so to speak. And now 
it's evolved to this Twitter aggregation stuff. That's at least my read on it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And um, I'm, I, I can't, I'm 35. I came up in a similar yeah. way you did right. with independent blogging and then working for larger sites. And uh, I, it makes me sort of sad that that doesn't seem to be a viable path in a lot of ways anymore and that there isn't really... In a lot of ways, there isn't really the emphasis on writing that there right. used to be, right? Like no. there's so much more emphasis on the social media, um, on on just even and beyond like uh, aggregating reports, uh, aggregating quotes, right? And right. just there's yeah. so many accounts that just do the quote graphics of quotes yeah. that are given given to somebody else. And like there's there's value to that for some people. There's clearly some people who enjoy getting their sports news just through Twitter and just through aggregators and that's okay. But I, I do think it is a little unfortunate that it's, it's ha harder to break in now in general, and it's harder to break in in a way where you are maybe adding more to the conversation. And, and that dovetails nicely to what I was going to say. You know, I do think it's sad in that it really shows like what, is there even really an industry anymore? Uh, Ethan Strauss wrote about this on his Substack last mm -hmm. week, and I think it's a good point. Like, there's all all these content farms where basically, mm -hmm. like, it's just Schefter reports something, and it creates mm -hmm. its own news cycle. Everyone aggregates the report, or as you said, an athlete even tweets something, and then mm -hmm. all the aggregators just aggregate a report, and there's just it's just the, the all these you know sports illustrated basically now a content farm sadly um so it, it's sad because you're right it's like is this really the industry you know you want to get into sports media all right well follow all the nfl insiders and then you know uh tweet out what they say before anybody else and then boom that's how you do it it is it is sad and it makes you wonder like again is there even really an industry anymore really <laughs> well and i think that's interesting because uh, like this industry has always been shifting, right? Oh, yeah. You know that well from your from your years covering it. But like, there there have been so many cycles over even the last fifteen years, of so right. on. And and uh, like, even my my nostalgia there for eras of independent blogs. Well, most of those independent blogs were not making money and not providing a way to like actually do this as no. a career or anything, right? So it was a lot of people. And for the people who did manage to use that and turn that into a career, that, that's awesome. But there were a lot of people who put a lot of time and effort into it and got never really got that chance. Um, and then like, and then there would be a time where there was a, a while where, where blogging and writing was actually sort of profitable for a bunch of people. There were a lot of major media companies that were getting more into it and doing some interesting things there. And then that sort of went away because uh, content habits shift and the way people engage with content shifts. And I, I think that's like we're hitting we're hitting that again now. But I don't think this is even going to be the last evolution. Like I think we're, we're seeing people finding ways to do interesting new things. We're seeing a lot of people, uh, younger people, doing interesting things with TikTok shows, yep. with YouTube yes. shows, yep. and. Fi uh, with new and different podcasts yeah. and so on. So yeah. I, I think like w w there are some, there are some challenges here, but there have always been challenges. There have always been shifts. And I don't think this is the last shift we're going to see. Yeah, that is right. There's so much creative stuff happening on Twitch as well. You know, maybe that's a 20 year old. Maybe that's, maybe that's what I would have done at 20. You know, I, I would start my own Twitch channel. I'll give myself a little more credit. I would be a little more creative maybe than just aggregating. I don't know. Um, so speaking of shifting industry, it's, 
you wrote a great piece, an interview with John Wertham, Sports Illustrated writer, who has a cover story out about the death of the local sports anchor. Obviously, this is not necessarily a news story, um, but what was something that caught your eye about the piece and in talking to him about where this industry stands today in 2023? Yeah, um, I, I thought it, I thought it was a great piece, and uh, John's original SI piece is well worth a read here. Yeah, um, there were. It. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, there were a number of things that stood out to me. And uh, I really appreciate getting the chance to talk to him about this and about how um, I think in particular, it was it was interesting to get his thoughts on how uh, how this crystallizes larger media trends like this is uh, this is related to the rise of cable It's relate and subsequent decline of cable. This is related to more recently. It's related to in shifts to the internet, to the um, the absolute lack of need to watch a local sport cast, a sports cast for scores anymore, right? Like there's so many other ways to do that that you're getting that information so much sooner, and so it, it, it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating piece on that on those levels, and I think a, a really good point John made to me, and he even um, using the now Michael's quote he got a long time ago that he used in the piece is like. A lot of us, younger people in particular, we certainly don't remember um, remember firsthand. Maybe we've read about it, but we don't really remember firsthand a time when you wanted the the local job rather than the national job, rather than working your working your way up into a bigger national role. And John talks about how Al Michaels was really conflicted about leaving Hawaii to go work do red stuff and eventually work his way up to that national role. And to me, that's really fascinating and really interesting um, that like that wasn't that long ago, all things considered, but it's so wildly different from what we mm. see today. Yeah, it totally is. And um, yeah, the local sports anchors used to live like kings. There's no doubt about it. But I mean, the industry itself is to blame here, right, mm -hmm. for the downfall of the local sportscaster. I mean, basically nothing is the same as it was in 1973, except how local sports are delivered on TV news. It's like, you know, I feel like sadly these, and it's not their fault, but maybe the network's mm -hmm. fault. I mean, they have no one to blame but themselves. There's been like no evolution in how it's presented. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it. And I thought that was an interesting part of John's article too, was talking to, to some of these guys about Trying some di trying some different oh, yeah. things, going going hyper local, maybe yes. showing more of the high school sports yeah. who you won't see. But I, I I don't know that that entirely fixes it. But I don't no. know. Maybe maybe you get maybe you get some people looking at it that way. I think his point on the um, a shift to more uh, uh, opinion and analysis is maybe yeah. interesting. Like yeah. if you've got the right sportscaster who people really care about their like thoughts. Dale Henson in Dallas. Dale yeah. Henson, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And and uh, we we covered Dale a lot, and he yep. said some really interesting things and really yep. really used that yeah. platform in a very interesting way. I think that uh, that in my mind is a really interesting larger shift and one that goes beyond. Um, that, that goes beyond local sportscasts. And I think we're seeing this with ESPN and with, with their studio shows too, of it's not just about the people who sit there and watch all three hours of first take. It's about let's what's going to play well on Twitter. What's going yep. to play well on YouTube. Right. Like what is a good one minute clip right. that we can widely share. Right. Yeah, I don't think anybody in the world, I refuse to believe, has watched a second of Skip Bayless's show, like, sitting down, but we've all seen it on Twitter. 
I guess that's right. what I like to believe. <laughs> um, but it's also like just there's just so much content out there, right? And I think it really deals with just the decline. Like everything is so niche today. And, mm-hmm. you know, even sports coverage, right? If you're an analytics person, there are tons of websites and podcasts mm-hmm. where you get the analytics coverage. If you want more coverage of the social parts of the game, there's tons of people providing that as well. And like the local newscast is supposed to appeal to the broadest section of people possible, but mm-hmm. that conversely makes it really hard for these sports anchors to find something that is their niche because by definition, mm-hmm. a niche product only appear only appeals to a small group of people. So it goes against the whole local, you know, TV newscast setup. That's yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, it it absolutely is, and I think I think that's a challenge. And uh, I th- there's always been the challenge too of how sportscasts fit into that local news framework. Like some of some of them have fit in very well. Some people have tuned in to the local news mostly for the sportscast, but a local newscast is it's such a different mix of things, right? Like it's it's local stories. It's sometimes national stories, sometimes with a local angle. A lot of time it's weather. Well, what I find really interesting about what, uh, watching games on broadcast TV is all, all the in-house ads are for the, for the weather. It's all and weather. We, yeah. yeah. We've got the best weather person. Come all watch weather. our, come watch our yeah. weather and no one else's. Right. Yeah. And so like within this newscast, you're trying to reach so many different people who are maybe only interested in one specific part of it. And I think that makes the job even harder. Yeah, especially around here in Boston, we got 12 inches of snow all winter. Yet every time there's a threat of precipitation, you know, Nor'easter coming. And you're like, okay, it was half an inch. So, uh, yeah. Andrew Buckholtz, read him on Awful Announcing Farm on Twitter. Andrew, thanks for the time. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Alex.